We're continuing our, our series on work this morning, and so uh, you probably noticed we're just using the bulletin that we had last week, already printed up. Um, so we're actually going to be cutting this series short on the back end of it. Um, so this morning, we're obviously looking at work the curse. Mark grew up with just a sister and a mother. His dad had passed away when he was quite young, and growing up in the 1950s in a, in a single-parent household uh, was quite difficult, and, and his mom, you know, was not able to get uh, work that could really provide for them a, a truly comfortable lifestyle. They, they survived, definitely, but they usually ended up living kind of on, on the badder parts of town. They lived kind of on that side of the tracks, and Mark, uh, you know, growing up kind of rough and tumble, learned to, to fight his way out of situations when he had to, um, but he also grew up in the church, and largely, uh, he says, through the prayers of his mother, uh, he, he kind of became convinced that, that Jesus is who he says he is, and, and Mark wanted to follow him w- with all that he had. And so he, he got himself into a Christian college, and he worked his way through paying for it himself, and he wanted to become a Christian counselor. But it never happened. Mark got a job right out of college as a corrections officer, and for years, he kept trying to figure out a way to get into a career field that he actually loved, that he actually would enjoy going to every day. And it just never worked out. And so the years just slipped by into decades. And after decades of daily contact with some of the most hardened criminals imaginable, Mark has seen and heard things that most of us just truly could not bear. And of course, it's, it's taken a toll emotionally, physically, spiritually. He's past retirement age now, but he's still working. He's still trying to save up enough money to retire. Michael grew up in a larger family, and he started playing sports in high school, and he eventually got recruited by a college to play basketball, and he went on to play professionally in the NBA. And he's widely regarded now as one of the best players that the game has ever seen. Mike went on to win six NBA championships, and he has six MVP titles from those games. Michael Jordan currently has a net worth of around $650 million. At his induction into the Hall of Fame, though, he started to list out person after person, starting with his own siblings. And he said the same basic thing about every single one of them. He basically saw them as a competitor that he had to beat. Last year, ESPN ran a story on Michael Jordan around the time of his 50th birthday. And it was a great, great article, but there's a couple of really heartbreaking moments in it. And there's this one scene where he's in this hotel room with some members of his, his entourage, and one of the guys goes out to get them some things to pass the time on. So they get these word search books. And so they're just trying to kill some time between whatever it is they have going on. But, but Michael is so competitive that he turns it into a race. And of course, he beats everybody in the room at just a, a, a children's game, right? A word search book. But he says to the reporter who's sitting in the room, I can't help myself. It's an addiction. You asked for this special power to achieve these heights, and now you got it, and you want to give it back, but you can't. If I could, then I could breathe. Michael Jordan is so 
obsessed with competition that even at age 50, he still finds himself getting lost down the rabbit hole of what if. What if he came back to the game one more time? Man has retired three times from the NBA, and he still thinks about, what if I could come back? What would I be like against LeBron James? What would I play like against Kobe Bryant? And he seriously asks this question out loud to the reporter. He says, how can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? How can I find peace away from basketball? Mark, on the other hand, is generally at peace. Some of you have probably guessed by now that that Mark is my dad. And when you ask him how he's been able to handle this job that he never wanted, to be around people that that none of us would want to be around, he, he acts surprised, as if, why would you think that this isn't something that could be done? Why is it something that anyone would find remarkable? And he says, I just try to treat people Murderers, rapists, thieves. I just try to treat them like human beings. That's all he does. Now, I've set up these two men simply as a way of saying that our relationship to work and fulfillment and identity is incredibly, incredibly complex. And what we're seeing this morning in our passage is that the world has been cursed And so people like my dad deal with the effects of that curse in very tangible, everyday ways. My dad's job is made possible by the curse, and he sees it every day. And as much as we'd like to assume that everyone should just do what they love, we have to recognize that there are some jobs in this curse-filled world that are just absolutely necessary, and nobody's going to love doing them. And even... Even when you're Michael Jordan and you do the one thing that you love and you do it better than everyone else in the world, it's no guarantee that you'll actually be happy. Last week, or sorry, two weeks ago, I'm going to do that a lot, so just hang in there. When I say last week, I mean two weeks ago. Brian walked us through the blessing of work, reminding us that that work is, is part of who we are. It's a very, very good thing that in the beginning we see God as a worker and he makes us in his image to be workers. We are designed to bring order out of chaos, to give shape to things. And Brian showed us how rhythms of rest and work actually give our lives an incredible amount of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. And so this morning I'm kind of tasked with being bad cop. I have to tease out for us what it means that our relationship with work is broken. Because what we see in the curse in Genesis 3 is that humanity in disobeying God has disrupted the relational order of the whole world. We're no longer in right relationship with God, we're no longer in right relationship with each other, and we're no longer in right relationship with the world. And since much of our work, the work as God designed it, is us giving shape to the world, If our relationship with the world is broken, it would follow that our relationship with work is also incredibly broken. It's quite different than what it was in Genesis 1 and 2. So as we consider what this means for us, I'd like us to see, most of all, that the gospel is situated in the midst of this curse in a way that serves to relativize both work's frustrations and work's glories. So let me just say, it's, it's, it's difficult at times as a, as a preacher to know that you're giving like a generally sort of deflating kind of sermon. 
It would be, I would much rather kind of give this, yeah, work, hoorah. And, and I think we're going to get there. I, I think next week we'll see that, that scripture and the Christian story really do have a lot of positive things to say about what work is and how it has lasting value. But this morning, uh, I have to kind of talk us back from that so that we can see how work can be incredibly, incredibly frustrating, how work can be an idol, and how work can be redeemed. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes a garden, and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden to tend it. He creates human beings with a desire to see things flourish. And here in Genesis 3, the job description has not really changed at all. It's basically the same exact task. It's just that the level of success is cut short, and the conditions in which the work is to take place are now horribly adverse. And this should alert us to a couple of things about the frustrations of work. And the first is that work is going to take effort, which seems like a pretty obvious thing to say, but when you look around at the sort of folk tales that our culture tells us, we tend to think that the most successful people in the world are the ones that, are, that just kind of had the talent, right? They were just born with it, and they just kind of fell into it, and now they're doing exactly what they want. We've got to realize that work is going to require of us consistency, dedication, and perseverance. A friend of mine is an illustrator, and his work is absolutely fantastic, and he's so good at it that he sees more money a year than most of us ever will, which as an illustrator is fairly rare. And he does a lot of work to mentor other artists who want to do what he does. And the thing that I've heard Corey say more often than anything else is the thing that bugs him to death is when people come up to him and they see his work and they say, man, you are so talented. I can't draw. I just wasn't born with it like you. And he just wants to grab him by the throat and say, I wasn't born with anything different than you. I get up every single day and I stay up half the night and for hours and hours and hours, all I do is draw and I've been doing it since I was like five years old. I put in the work. It takes effort. Work takes effort even when it comes to something as fun as drawing. But beyond just effort, the, the other thing that Genesis 3 alerts us to is that work is going to be incredibly frustrating because even those of us that, that push through that need to, to be consistent and persevere and, and, and put in effort, even when we do that, the ideas that we have in our mind of what we would like to accomplish are so much higher than anything we've ever accomplished. All of us fall short of our own ideas in our head. And if you think of the curse of the passage that we read here in terms of relationship, you'll see that husbands and wives have gone from loving one another, serving one another, meeting the needs of the other, to vying for power, to a lifelong wrestling match for control. And the same is now true with our relationship to work. We are struggling to maintain control. We want to be the one in power. And when we're not aware of the brokenness of work and how it, how it, teases us in life, we, we end up acting out our frustrations with work in a couple of different ways. Some of us just stop trying. When we get faced with the effort that work takes that's required and the incredible frustration that comes when our own expectations can't be met by our output, we just stop trying. We decide we'd rather not try than have to carry around a sense of failure. But others of us, though, overcompensate, don't we? We try to become kind of the Michael Jordan of our careers. Everything is viewed through the lens of competition. 
Everything is viewed through the lens of scarcity and the need for domination and victory, and work becomes a way for us to exorcise our inner demons. We feel inadequate, and so we're going to be the very absolute best at whatever it is that we're doing. I think, though, if we allow the Christian story of the world to speak to us, we'll see that work is an incredibly good thing that Brian talked to us about two weeks ago and that we're going to see more of next week. But the very fact that it's a good thing and so tied up in our sense of identity and meaning is the very reason why it trips us up more than almost anything else because work can be an idolatry and it's, the idolatry of work is even more ensnaring for many of us in this room than the frustrations of work. Our culture has so united what you do with who you are that it's become as unconscious to us as our own hearts beating. We've just assumed that it's true, that what you do for work determines your value, determines your worth, determines the type of person you are. Not only that, but our culture has a sort of tacit agreement about what kinds of work are worth doing. Don't, don't we? This is probably more prevalent in a place like Portland than, than we realize. Most of us here are not chasing money. Some of you have moved away from that sort of Northeastern America idea of I got to work hard and I'm going to get this thing and I'm going to get promoted and I'm going to have all the money and, and that's what I want to do. Most people in Portland are not, not into that. Some of us are, are here because we're avoiding that. Oftentimes, though, the currency in Portland is, is your work meaningful? And even more elusive, is it cool? So we all do this, right? We, we all have this game that we play when we're at a cocktail party. And if we were in New York, then there's, there's a few right answers to give to the question that's going to come up at the cocktail party. What do you do? Well, I'm in finance. I'm in politics. I'm, in, I'm an academic. If we were in L.A., we're what? We're screenwriters, maybe entertainment lawyers. I'm an actor. I mean, I'm a server, but really I'm an actor. I think in Portland, the correct answer is something like, well, I work for a nonprofit that, has, that pairs up little kids to read books to terminally ill cats, and it's just, you know, it's so meaningful. And, or I, I have an Etsy shop, and I'm really creative, and I make, you know, I don't know what, really cool things, and I'm building this personal brand to monetize the things that excite me. And guess what? There is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with getting paid to do the things that you love, to do the things that excite you. There's nothing wrong with having an Etsy shop, just like there's nothing wrong with working in finance or politics or academia. But we have to be aware how our culture wants to absolutize things that aren't absolutes, that we are surrounded by people, and indeed we are people that are trying to find salvation through our work. So here's how the Portland idols of work play out. Some of you are doing really cool work and it's incredibly fulfilling and you wake up every morning and you think, I cannot believe they pay me to do this. And that is a rare and truly wonderful thing. And I, and I hope that for everything else that I've said and will say this morning, that, that you hear me saying, I'm happy for you. That is incredibly rare. That is a rare gift to be afforded in this world. Most people do not get to get up and do what they love. They have to get up and do what they have to do to survive. And it's a truly wonderful thing to be able to feel fulfilled in your work. But, but if you start to believe 
what our culture tells us, that, that your value is tied up completely in what you do, then the second that you stop outperforming yourself, your value starts to drop. And if you're not careful, you're going to end up just like Mike. You're going to be completely successful and absolutely unable to rest. Because your work identity, this thing that you thought you could worship, has now become a prison cell. But others of you are, are doing decidedly not cool work. And I don't know where I fit on this because I like what I do, but, but here's what happens. For those of you that don't do cool work, I think we have the same experience at those cocktail parties. What do you do? And as soon as you start to say it, you can just see the glaze and you can hear the, the clock in their head ticking down to when they can say, oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to get another drink. Some of you aren't doing fulfilling work. And in fact, you feel incredibly stuck in frustrating, dead-end jobs. You feel like a cog in the machine. Some of you aren't just stuck in jobs you don't particularly like, but they don't even really pay you enough to cover your bills. And some of you have been laid off from those jobs. Some of you here work for tyrants that call you at like 3 in the morning and then again at 5 in the morning and they're always wanting you to do something just for them and then they come into your workspace and they make a mess out of everything. And yes, I'm talking about children. Some of you work for some of the most thankless people that can't even talk to you and they're just demanding everything of you all the time. And there are these things that when you get into a room with other people who are doing the thing that you think of as being successful you just start to feel small. You start to feel unworthy. You start to feel like, what am I even doing with my life? And if you just swallow the story that our culture tells us, that what you do is who you are, then on your best day, you're going to walk around like Charlie Brown, just screaming, good grief, over and over. All of which is to say, our world is absolutely trying to cram us into a mold. And whether it's the mold of success or failure on their terms makes no difference because both of them become prison houses. So whichever one you are, if you're doing the thing that you absolutely love or if you can't even get a job that you can't stand, the Christian gospel has good news for you because you are not defined by what you do. You're just not. And if you don't believe me, think about it just empirically. How many people here, you can seriously show me your hands, how many people here know what their grandfathers did for a living? Great-grandfathers? Great-great-grandfathers? You are not defined by what you do. You are defined by the fact that you have been created in the image of God. That is the point of irreducible value in you. You have been made in the image of God, and not only that, but the same God in whose image you have been made loves you more than you could figure out in ten lifetimes. He loves you enough to enter into the mess of this frustrating, curse-filled world, and he takes on the very signs of the curse itself. Thorns in the ground get worked into a mocking crown and stabbed onto his head. The sweat of his brow becomes great drops of blood. He returns to dust for us. That's how much he loves you. He takes on desolation and death. And ultimately, this is how work itself 
gets redeemed. Because by God playing the part of the cursed outcast, we learn that we are not loved and valued by our performance, whether it's in our religious performance or our vocational performance or our family performance. We are loved, valued, and reconciled to God because of the performance of Jesus, because of his work as the curse reverser. As I said, next week we're going to look more at at a positive view of how work can be a good and lasting, valuable thing, even in a curse-filled world. But as we close this morning, I'd like us to focus on one of the signs of our redemption. Not just the redemption of us, but the redemption of work itself, and that is this table. This bread and this wine is what the, the church calls a sacrament. It is a deep, deep Mystery that, that somehow in these physical elements, God is present with us in such a way to be gracious toward us, that he fills us and feeds us in an unexplainable way. And what we believe is that somehow Jesus is actually present in this sacrament, in the bread and in the wine. And those for centuries, different streams of the church have argued about how that can actually be. And that's a great conversation to have, but you know what it's done? It served to distract us from the greater mystery if, if this is the way that God feeds his people, that he gives himself over to his people, why would he choose bread and wine? I mean, there's a very good biblical theological answer for that that stretches back for centuries. But why in the beginning would God choose bread and wine? Two things that have to be made, not found. Why wouldn't he use strawberries and water? Something that humans can just happen by and take for themselves, and eat and drink. Do you see how God has tied himself to his people? Even in this mysterious, glorious sacrament, he chooses to use something that requires human labor. Think about the process. Someone had to grow this grain and harvest it. Someone had to drive the truck to the bread factory. Are there bread factories? Is that a thing? Bakery? (laughs) It has to be transported. It has to be made into dough. It has to be baked. A vintner had to plant these grapes, come around and harvest them, and go through an incredibly complex process to make it into wine. And what we're being shown in this meal is that God values us so deeply and our work so deeply that he chooses to use things that require our labor, that our work, even a guy whose name none of us know, who's baking bread at Safeway at 3 o'clock in the morning, Though frustrating, though hindered by the curse, that work is actually being used by God to bring about his mission in the world, to make his presence known in our midst. We're going to talk more about that next week, but let's pray together as we confess our faith and come to the table. Would you pray along with me? Jesus, as we come to your table in a moment, and, and consider the work that you have done on our behalf, that you have taken on our curse. Would we leave this place um, knowing that regardless of, of what work awaits us tomorrow morning, that that does not make us who we are, that we are loved by you enough that you would come and die for us, and that says everything that needs to be said about us, Would you free us from our need to perform, 
our need to build our identity for ourselves. And instead, let us come and feed on you with great thanksgiving. We ask this in your name. Amen.